thank you so much for kindly having me back. Uh, I, I remember in 1999, there was a movie that came out called The Sixth Sense. It was with Bruce Willis, and there was a really cute little kid in it who got real creepy when he would, remember when he would say, I see dead people. And so I remember for like weeks after this, I was, I was just paralyzed with fear uh, when I was alone in my house. If there was a dark hallway, the light had gone out, or I had to go into a room, you know, at night before the lights were on. And so you might relate to this. I would walk up to the dark corridor knowing I was going to have to go through the dark and I'd walk at a steady pace and the closer I got the faster I'd walk right until I was trying to sprint through there and I'd get into the room and I'm just frantically looking for the light switch it's moving around I think as I'm trying to turn it on finally the lights come on and okay great we're safe now that that's that's sort of a, um, a superficial fear that that probably everybody can relate to that that kind of of thing but the reality is that all of us deal with much more substantial fears than that and and these fears can actually come to govern our life and control our life. And I think about uh, the way that some people fear death and loneliness and rejection and failure and war and poverty and pestilence and loss and suffering or even less serious things like dentists or public speaking. But all these things have the potential to really govern our heart and paralyze us. And I remember back uh, on September 11, 15 years ago, uh, as I know you remember, right where I was uh, in my dorm room at Texas A&M, getting ready for morning classes, went around 7.30 central time, saw that American Airlines Flight 11 had hit the North Tower. And I sat there and watched these images of a world, I had never been to New York, a world felt like a million miles away and was just confused. I didn't know, of course, at the time that just Four years later, my wife and I would move there and be part of a church plant that we'd welcome the birth of our, our oldest son there in New York. So those people I was watching would soon become friends and neighbors. But I remember the way that changed the world. It, it actually kind of defined the way that we fear for at least a generation in our, in our country. And I remember uh, th th that federal agencies were created out of this thing, that wars were waged. I remember the way that on that day, there were cars lined up for miles waiting to get gas and gas prices went up to $5 a gallon, and everybody was just so scared about what's going to happen. And for, for months after that, you remember all the, uh, the risk codes that came out from the federal government? How likely is it that a terrorist is going to attack you today? Threat level red, threat level orange. It was never green, right? Never relax. And for months and years, this, this went on. It changed the way we travel. And the reality is that these fears... Um, they can, they can do more than they should in our life, right? And, and I think about even the way that 9-11 that, uh, continues to have a legacy into today that we were introduced to vocabulary words like jihadist and militant Islam that in some instances are descriptive and some instances are just political buzzwords used to propagate fear. And I think about this, this particularly unique presidential election cycle we're in. I have friends who are Democrats who are genuinely afraid of what it means if the Republican candidate becomes our president. And I have Republican friends who are genuinely afraid of what would it mean if the Democratic candidate becomes our president. And then I know other people who are genuinely afraid if either of them become president. And everybody's just scared and confused. And I was listening to PBS NewsHour with Judy Woodruff a couple weeks ago, and she had some Ivy League academics, and they were talking about the way that in presidential politics, fear is always used. Even back to the, to the founding of the United States for hundreds of years, 
presidential hopefuls are using fear. And the reason is because it works. Because we are easily riled up by fear. Regardless of how irrational or desperately disproportionate those fears are. Andrew McGill, who writes for The Atlantic, had a piece this last week. And he pointed out that actually today in 2016, Americans report being more scared of terrorism than in 2002. So in the months after 9-11 to today, Americans are more scared of terrorism. And in fact, the number one indicator as to whether you are going to report that you have a high or low fear of terrorism is whether or not your preferred political party is in the White House. Republicans, when there's a Democrat there, they report that they're really scared of terrorism and, and, vice, and vice versa. Really interesting. And these effects of fear, at the very least, can be distracting and disorienting and at the, at the worst, can be totally debilitating. And the Bible acknowledges the strength of human fear. And Jesus actually addresses it. So we're going to read from Matthew 10 today. If you have a Bible and you want to open there, Matthew Chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 26. But as you open, let me give, me give you a little context and background. Matthew 10, verses 1 through 25, here's what Jesus says. He says, he gets his disciples together and he says, I'm going to empower you to cast out demons in my name, to heal the sick, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And I want you to go out to Israel and I want you to declare the kingdom is coming and call people to repentance and heal the sick. And as you do, here's what I want you to understand. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You're going to be resisted. You're going to be oppressed. You're going to be persecuted. Children will turn against their parents and parents will turn against their children and the authorities will drag you before courts and councils. This is not going to go well for you as you go. And then in verse 26, so have no fear of them, those who would resist the disciples. So have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Thanks be to God. We're going to see at least three things in this passage that Jesus shows us, and, and we're going to look at them in order. The first is that he gives us a prohibition against fear. Look in verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now, isn't this surprising that Jesus would spend the first 25 verses making a really compelling case as to why the disciples should be scared? I mean, he articulates masterfully exactly why the most rational response for the disciples would be abject terror, right? Sheep among wolves, that's not good. And yet he says, don't fear. Well, wh why not? Why, Jesus, should we not fear? And he, he begins to answer it even right here. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What does he mean by that? I think in part, what he's saying is that these resistors of the church, these oppressors of those who carry the gospel will be exposed by the light of God. In other words, God is sovereign over them. Their hearts and their deeds will be exposed. Their actions against the disciples, while, while God may allow them to transpire, will not allow them to go unredressed forever. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. 
we know that light exposes darkness, right? It dispels darkness. You turn on a light in the room, the darkness goes away, and we're not scared anymore. Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by light becomes visible. Listen, ultimately all sin will be exposed. Ultimately, every secret thing in your heart and in your life, every thought and deed will be exposed. Ultimately, there will be no secrets. Ultimately, every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, either in glad submission or in mournful subjugation. There is not an open question as to whether every knee will bow. The only open question is that when those knees bow, will they be in exaltation or in anguish? Everything will be exposed. Anthony Dorer, the novelist, wrote a book a couple years ago. It was a New York Times bestseller. I'm sure many of you have read it called All the Light We Cannot See. And there's a really interesting passage. Listen to what Dorer says uh, via the protagonist narrator. It says, This, she realizes, is the basis of his fear, of all fear, that a light you are powerless to stop will turn on you and usher a bullet to its mark. That's powerful imagery, isn't it? A light you are powerless to stop will turn on you and usher a bullet to, to its mark. This is part of what Jesus is alluding to here. None of us wants to be found out. None of us wants to be exposed. This is why it's, this is why it's difficult for me to, to be up here. I'm not, I, I'm not scared of public speaking, but, but I feel vulnerable when I feel like I could be exposed. Right? Here's the reality. If you knew all that was in my heart and you knew all that I had done in my life, you wouldn't ask, you wouldn't let me be up here. You wouldn't let me share pulpit space with Pastor Jeff. And if I knew all that was in your heart and all that you had done in your life, I'd be too scared to stand up here before you. This is true of all of us. We, we don't want to be exposed. Being subject to the wrath of God is not a popular thing to talk about, but it's critical to understanding the biblical revelation of Jesus. Listen to the way that one New England pastor from the 18th century who, who led one of the greatest revivals, probably the greatest revival in American history. Listen to, to an excerpt from one of his sermons here. I'm going to read it monotone because that's how he preached all of his sermons. He just read the entire time monotone. So let me, let me read for you. Here's what he says. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Now that's not, that's not the kind of thing we're used to hearing in church, is it? Like if you turn on a TV preacher today, you're not going to hear that passage. To get that uplifting passage, you had to come to Wood's Edge. So thanks for being here. Hope, hope you leave feeling great today. Uh, I, I presume there may be some of you who are uncomfortable that I even referenced that passage. Um, and that's okay. This is what us moderns would consider the unseemly side of the Bible. But we have to take it seriously because it's what Jesus says. Look back at the passage and we're going to see the second thing. Jesus gives us a prohibition against fear first. Now he's going to give us a prescription for fear. So look back at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus Man, I was going to invite you to the dinner party, but if you're going to talk like that, I don't, think, I don't think he wants you around with all this business about hell 
and judgment, right? Jesus revisits the injunction against fear here, but notice it's not an absolute prohibition against all fear, but rather a specific fear. Fear of those who can kill the body, but not the soul. But while he proscribes that fear, he actually prescribes a different fear, namely that of a God who has power not only over the body, but over the soul. Jesus says, don't fear them. Fear him. Don't fear that which is other. Fear that which is other. Right? Not a prohibition against all fear, but a specific fear. And we have an instinctive objection to this because we want to say, well, this isn't the God I know. Certainly Jesus wouldn't be so uncouth and irresponsible as to suggest that we should fear God and, and, and all this messy talk about hell, right? That's not the God I know. I believe in a God of love. Listen to, uh, listen to what C.S. Lewis writes in, in one of his books, uh, The Great Divorce. There's a, it's a story, it's a fictional story, uh, a woman in this part of the book is at, sort of at the metaphorical gates of heaven and this angelic being is inviting her to come in. And she's, she's paused and she's asking to see her son who predeceased her. So she's saying, my son died. I want to make sure he's here before I come in. And the angel says, no, no, no. You have to come in and then you can see your son. Come first and then you'll have all eternity to be with your son. And she, she gets obstinate because she wants proof of life. She wants to know she's going to be with him and listen to what she says. She says, give me my boy. Do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has the right to come between me and my son, not even God. I hate your religion and I hate and despise your God. I believe in a God of love. And this is really the crux of the matter, isn't it? That there's a God that is and a God that we want there to be and the two are not always the same. But we must get straight on this point. He is God and we are not. He doesn't bend to our conception of truth and goodness. We bend to his. We don't get to tell Jesus what the Father is really like or how to interact with him. Jesus reveals to us what the Father is like and tells us how to posture ourselves before him. Jesus says, don't fear the other. Fear the other. Don't fear that which is merely different from you. Fear that which is other than you. Not a man with a different colored skin or a different accent or a different religion or worldview or political ideology. Don't fear them. Because before the presence of God, even the demons tremble, says James. The voice of God causes the earth to quake and the cedars to be stripped bare, says the psalmist. Fear that which is holy, other, transcendent, sovereign, unapproachable, without equal, without form, without precedent, independent, unchangeable, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, the one true God. He is other. Jesus isn't saying not to fear anything. He's saying we should fear the right thing. And Jesus actually says something that social science confirms for us, and that is that humans are terrible at risk assessment. So if you've read uh, any of the Freakonomics books, two economists from the University of Chicago, Lovett and Dubner, and they write about how humans always tend to overestimate dangers that are foreign to us and underestimate dangers that are familiar to us. So let me give you an example. Is anybody here scared of spiders? Like black widows or brown recluse? Anybody, do you, you scared of spiders at all? Let me ask you a question. How many people, thank you, raise his hand. I love interaction. It makes me feel like we're, we're engaged together. How many people each year die in the United States from a, a spider bite? Six and a half. 
Christian, did you say six and a half million? No, just six and a half. What, what about snakes? Anybody scared of snakes? Like rattle, oh, a lot, all the hands are up now. So like rattlesnakes, water moccasins, you don't mess around with snakes. How many people each year die in the United States on average from snake bites? Five and a half. Now, consider this. The, uh, the National Safety Council points out that every year in the United States, 55 people die from hot tap water. That means you are 10 times more likely to die from tap water coming out of the faucet of your house than you are spider bites. Is anybody, is your fear of tap water close to your fear of spiders? What about, what about walking? Do you know that you are 100 times more likely to die from slipping, tripping, or falling than you are from a snake bite or a spider bite? It, do, when you walk, are you just with trepidation? Oh, is this going to be the last one? <laughs> no, no, never, right? We are terrible at risk assessments. Jesus is saying we need to have a correct view of fear. I ran into some friends uh, in the lobby here a few weeks ago. Some folks I went to college with, hadn't seen them in over 10 years, found out that they and their kids live in Cairo, Egypt, and they serve with a ministry there, and they're back here on furlough. So we had them over for dinner, and we were just asking about their life, and they said something interesting. They said the most common question they get when they come home is people saying, Cairo, aren't you scared to be over there with your little kids? Isn't it dangerous there? Aren't, aren't there like terrorists there? And, and they were pointing out, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, the answer to those questions is, well, kind of. I mean, are there people there who resist the gospel? Sure. Are there people there who are bent towards violence? Yes. That's true here too. That's actually true everywhere. And regardless, that's not the question that Jesus is calling us to ask. He says to count the cost and then obey and following him and recognizing that in this world there will be trouble, but take heart for I've overcome the world. Jesus hasn't called us to walk in fear of men, of resistance, of violence, of those who oppose us. Jesus says, don't fear those who are different and can kill your body, but rather fear the one who has control over your soul. Now this creates a tension. If you're thinking about other passages in the Bible you've read, you might have this tension. You go, wait a minute, are we to fear God? Because didn't I read somewhere that God is love and that perfect love casts out all fear? You did. It's in 1 John. So we have a tension. Well, are, is this a contradiction? What are we supposed to do with these competing ideas? I, I wish that I could tell you that here's how we resolve it. Well, actually, if you read in the original Greek, when Jesus says, don't fear them, that's one Greek word that means something like trepidation. And he says, instead, fear God. And that means something different, like respect. But that's not true. It's the same word. Jesus uses the exact same word. So what do we do with this tension? Well, let's look back at our passage and see if Jesus will give us a little bit of relief from that question. And this is the third thing he shows us. So first a prohibition against fear, then a prescription for fear. And now he's going to talk about living in freedom from fear. So verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So here's part of the answer to the apparent contradiction. For those who are submitted to God, for those who have confessed their sin and professed their need for Jesus to save them, for those beloved by God, there is no fear because all that we should fear from God has been absorbed by Christ. God is then in charge of all circumstances and he cares for you. But God is still wholly other. He is still other. So we maintain a healthy fear due to what he's capable of. Just like when my kids stand on the beach before the ocean, I don't want them just to stand there and shake and not go in. I want them to enjoy the water. 
but they have to have a fear of what the ocean is capable of, right? A puddle after a rainstorm, it poses a danger. People have drowned in puddles, but it's nothing compared to the ocean. Don't, don't fear that, right? Fear this. And I want my kids to be able to, to crawl up into my lap at any time and put their, their arms around my neck and call me daddy at any time. But I also want them to have a fear of what I'm capable of in their life, right? I'm, I'm not completely sovereign in their life, but I have more control than, than most people. And so this is how Jesus helps us deal with this. The God who is holy other cares for us. Jesus says in Matthew 7, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? And then in John 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. Now, servants live in fear, right? It's kind of a servile position. But instead, he says, I call you friends. There's no fear for all who gladly bow their knee in submission to Christ Because the arrows of God's wrath that quiver against the bowstrings of God's justice are extinguished at the cross. There's no debilitating fear for those who have gladly bowed their knee into submission to Christ because the arrows of God's wrath that quiver against the bowstrings of God's justice are extinguished at the cross and they don't reach us. We are protected He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8 tells us. God is in control of everything and he cares for you. So what are the implications? Don't fear the religious other. Love them. Don't fear the political other. Love them. Don't fear the ethnic other. Love them. Don't fear loss. Don't fear loss of your possessions or your prestige or your job or your income or relationships. Don't fear loss. Trust God. Don't fear suffering. I I raise my hand on that one. I fear suffering. I love comfort. I love comfort. At some points I would say that I'm enslaved to comfort. I fear suffering. Don't fear suffering. In fact, the Bible says to rejoice in suffering. Don't fear suffering. God is in control of every circumstance and he cares for you. Now, this idea that God is in control of every circumstance, this is actually a really hard truth. Now, it's an easy thing to say when, for instance, you get a promotion at work or you welcome the birth of a healthy baby, right? When good things happen, it's easy to know that God is in control and to thank him for it. But what about when we see the bodies of Syrian toddlers wash up on foreign shores? What about those days when we watch airplanes fly into skyscrapers and watch people jumping out of windows to save themselves from the flames. What about, what about every year in America when tens of thousands of young people are killed by drunk drivers, year after year after year? 533 9-11s worth of deaths to drunk driving in the United States since 2001. What do we do with that? How, how is God in control there? Right, and this is the classic objection that skeptics and atheists raise, which is they say, God is clearly not in control because look at all the terrible stuff that happens. And alternatively, if God is in control and all of this terrible stuff is happening, he obviously is not good. He obviously does not care for us. Now, we can't have a complete answer to this question. Philosophers and theologians have wrestled with this for as long as people have been alive. This exists in the mind of God as a reconcilable problem. It will not be fully reconcilable to us. But here's what we can understand. And we have to settle this. 
If we're going to ever live in peace in our Christian life, we have to settle this. Listen to the way that one pastor states it. He says, settle this in your heart. Settle this in your heart. Life is a gift from God. He owes it to none. He can take it at any age, at any time, and do no wrong. Settle this in your heart. This is a hard truth. Everything God does is good. Everything God does is righteous. Everything God does is just. And we're not going to understand it. And sometimes all we can do is weep with sorrow and confusion. But we know that God is not confused. God is not out of control. He is in control of every circumstance. And he cares for us. So a few weeks after 9-11... 2001, I was sitting in that same dorm room and there was a guy who lived in my hall. He grew up in church all of his life, was there every Sunday, but he was far from the Lord. And so as, as we sat and talked about what was happening in our world and um, the way we saw current events and what we should expect, turned the conversation towards Jesus and I began to share the gospel with him. And I detailed how the life and work of Jesus was sufficient to absorb the wrath of God directed toward our sin and exchange it for the righteous love of God in our life. And as I spoke, this, this big guy, he was probably like 6'5", he was like two times my size. And as I spoke the words of the gospel to him, big tears began to well up in his eyes and his lip began to, to quiver. And I was, I was really surprised by the strength of emotion he was feeling at this point in the conversation. And, and I stopped talking. And after several Um, quiet moments as he tried to regain composure and and begin to speak. He opened his mouth and he said something poignant and life-defining. But it's probably not what you think. He opened his mouth and I'll, I'll never forget the words. He said, I will never forgive the Muslims for what they did to us. And my heart just broke. My heart broke. As I sat there and spoke the words of life and grace and forgiveness and I prayed in my heart that God would convict him of his sin and that he would be overcome by the the weight of his own sin and and the gravity of God's grace. Instead, he chose to swallow those bitter pills of hatred and fear. Let that not be us this morning. Those ruled by the hatred of of the other and fear of man, even, even if we're mistreated. There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where the the lion Aslan, who's kind of a Christ figure, he speaks to Queen Lucy and he says, you have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. There, are you brave again? Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, breathed the breath of life and the man became a living being. God offers us his very breath of life, his very spirit to free us from fear, to make us brave again. Child, you've listened to fears. Forget them. Let me breathe on you. Are you brave again? The Muslim people are not to be feared. They are beloved by God. And we are to love them. Hindu people are not to be feared. People who look different than you are not to be feared. Those with a political ideology different than yours are not to be feared. Even those who will oppose, oppress, and persecute you are not to be feared. Don't fear that which is merely different. Don't fear that which can kill the body. Don't fear that which is different. Fear that which is other. Recognize that God is in control of everything. The message of Matthew's gospel is that God so loved us that he took on flesh in the person of Jesus to suffer with us and die 
for us, to absorb the just wrath of God on our behalf, that rather than perish, we would have life abundant, so that we would be free to speak the words that Julian of Norwich spoke after praying and she saw a vision of the risen Christ and she said, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Why? Because God is in control of every circumstance and because because God loves us. Understand that God is not worried about the outcome of our election this year. There's nothing about what's happening politically in our country that God is biting his fingernails and just anxious to see what happens. There's nothing, there is nothing bad in your life that will happen outside of God's control. If you lose everything today, it will be under God's control and care. Not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the Father. And you are worth more than many sparrows. God is in control and he cares for us. Every hair of our head is numbered. He knows us intimately. He cares for us deeply. So today our response is to simply bend our knee to Jesus, to receive his sovereign kindness and care over our life. If you have never bent your knee to Jesus, if, if you don't even know what I mean by those words, here it is in sum. God is furious with our sin. God is angry that people fly building, uh, planes into buildings and kill people en masse. He is angry that people neglect and abuse children. He is furious that people cheat in business and lie and steal and are neglectful to their spouses and unloving to their neighbors. He is furious about these things. And he loves us so deeply that he sent his own son to absorb the righteous wrath that he holds over these things. And so today we simply confess our sin. God, I have sinned. And Jesus, I need you to save me. If you've already prayed that prayer, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've been there. I've, I've been in church a long time. I get the gospel. Today, the call for us is to go deep into the gospel and to be reminded that even those of us who have professed are still often ruled by fear. And Jesus is saying, don't fear them. Don't fear them. Let me breathe on you. Be brave again. I'm in control over your life and I care for you. So if you would join with me, I'll pray as we close and we'll ask God for these things. God, we are somberly aware today that, that uh, this is an anniversary that is deeply painful for our nation and really for the whole world. And we remember those who lost their lives 15 years ago in New York. Uh, I think this morning, God, about friends and neighbors I have there who, for them, it was not pictures on a TV screen, but it was their neighborhood and it was their classmates. God, thank you for people like Chaplain skip who run headlong into danger to serve and help. God, this morning we ask for your kindness and your grace that you would make us brave people who do not fear man, but hold a holy reverence for you who is eternal and sovereign and other. God, we rest in your kindness today. We receive your grace through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done to absorb the wrath of the Father for every sin ever committed that those God would choose and draw to himself, that they would be forgiven by your blood. Spirit, would you fill us today and make us brave, make us courageous, make us those who see the world correctly, who assess fear proportionately, and ultimately those who rest in the reality that you are in control and that you care. 
that you're good, that you love us, and so we can trust you and we can lay down our lives for you. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.